We turn again today to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've made our way to chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. In verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let's bow for prayer. We ask, Lord, that you would direct us into this text today in understanding of it, seeing things about it that we have not perhaps considered before, asking questions that we've perhaps not raised, but certainly considering very familiar words to us as a church. There may be some here gathered with us today who are dull to this text, who do not see the light of it, who do not understand what Christ is saying. And we pray that You would open their eyes by Your mercy and Your grace that they might one day sing the songs that we have sung, the songs of unworthiness, of our sinfulness, and yet of the awesome grace that has been displayed to sinners to invite us to feast at Your table. And we don't deserve to be there. I pray that You'd open their eyes and help all of us to see anew the teaching of our Savior. I pray that we'd be changed by this Word and by Your Spirit bringing conviction and understanding that there would be here the step forward toward heaven. That this Word would enable us to continue to persevere in the faith to put our trust and our confidence in Christ, crucified and risen. In His name we pray. Amen. Our nation proudly proclaims itself to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. And as pilgrims who are passing through this world, we should earnestly thank God for the freedoms and for the brave men and women who have labored to preserve those freedoms over these centuries. We've prayed that way already here this morning. But one area in which we seem to show little bravery as a culture is in our courage to commit. Living in a consumeristic age is part of that challenge. We like choices. We don't like being backed into a corner and having just one of two. Can you imagine a restaurant that requires you to choose between just two meals? I I think honestly in America, if those two meals were proven to be the optimal combination of exquisite taste and reasonable pricing, the restaurant would still fail. Because Americans want choices. We want options, and the more you narrow those options, the more boxed in we get and the more jittery we become. We certainly do not show much courage to commit as a nation when it comes to making the lifelong commitment of marriage. I don't want to make that commitment. I can't make it, not right now. Maybe if we live together for a few years, maybe if we see if it's workable and reasonable, then maybe. But lifelong marital fidelity to one person, yikes. The very words give me the creeps. So many respond in our day. And then we add democracy and we add pluralism to the stew. Democracy permits us to keep up the scramble, to remain, as we keep hearing now, on the right side of history. Democracy enables us to change the very definition of right and wrong as the winds of public opinion shift. We're very nimble in our democracy. And then we extend pluralistic tolerance to all who do not trouble whatever social doctrines are in vogue. 
which permits us to bow at any altar that we choose and to slurp up the supposed benefits of any number of popular beliefs. Pluralism and the rule of the majority seems to be the best way to permit people the freedom to do what is right in their own eyes as far as possible. And that's how we like it. Crashing into this social order is the clarion call of Jesus of Nazareth. Enter the narrow gate. The gate is wide that leads to destruction. The gate is narrow that leads to life. Two gates. One choice. No multiple options here. A call that is black and white, right and wrong, right or wrong, yes or no, with absolute commitment. No multiple options, just these two. There's no room here for debate. There's no invitation to dialogue, to negotiate terms, to see if Jesus might work out over time. We find here a clarion call to total commitment. A or B, left or right, this gate or that one. Make your choice. The words are simple, they're straightforward, but they certainly call for thorough analysis. So let's do that together for some moments here. Let's think about the sermon as a whole. Chapter 7 and verse 13 begins the lengthy conclusion of Jesus' sermon. We remember that his sermon begins there in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes at verse 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who come to God in abject spiritual poverty. Working out those Beatitudes, there is then this call to shine for His glory, to operate as preservative power in this world, 5.13-16. to 16. And then remember 5.17 where the body of the sermon begins And it's marked out for us by this reference to the law and the prophets. Then as we come to chapter 7 and verse 12, we find again the reference to the law and the prophets. So this works as a very common literary device in the Bible to help mark out a section of instruction. Starting with 517, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets and concluding, coming to an end, the body of the sermon was 7.12. This is how you fulfill the law and the prophets. Following this teaching of Christ is the essence of the revelation that existed at that time and that is commended to us in our time. So 7.13 begins the conclusion of this sermon. It's a fairly lengthy conclusion. In light of all that Jesus has taught, he concludes the sermon asking essentially now, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond to what I have taught? He articulates the way that people who live under his reign think, the attitudes that they invite into their soul, how they speak to others and how they act in relationship with others in this world. Working that out, He now says, what will you do? How will you respond to what I've taught? His hearers were not, of course, able to respond directly to the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's not died yet. They do not know the resurrection power, and he points them to prepare for that, but that's not the message that he particularly articulates here, because that is yet future. But they could respond to Jesus' teaching as His committed followers. And He invites them to do that. And respond, we must. You have heard what I have taught you. Now you must act. Jesus has spoken. He's articulated the will of God. Now what will you do about it? Like every faithful preacher, Jesus preaches for a verdict. He did not want the crowds to merely be awed by His words or impressed with His rhetorical skills. That wasn't the point. He wanted them to make a conscious commitment. Enter by the narrow gate. That is His call here in this text. And we take an unusually short passage of Scripture today to soak in it and to turn it like a diamond before us and to think carefully about it. 
But in these two verses, 13 and 14, this is his call. This is the imperative. Enter by the narrow gate. We'll then look at the two responses to this invitation that follow in verses 13 and 14. But here's the summons. Enter by the narrow gate. Now when we think of gate, it's unlikely that Jesus speaks of a wooden or a metal gate. When I think of a gate, that's what comes to my mind, these graphics here before He probably is envisioning in the context of that day, there were undoubtedly gates of something similar uh, to these, but probably thinking far more of the gate into a city. This is how the word would have typically been read and understood, and perhaps what Jesus envisions here. The gate that he exhorts us to enter, however, is not a broad gate, but rather a narrow gate, perhaps something thinking along these lines. It's a gate into a city wall, a passageway, but this one is very narrow. Now we ask when Jesus says, enter the narrow gate, your mind is probably already doing this, but you're asking, is this literal or is it figurative? Well, clearly Jesus wasn't thinking about a particular gate into some city wall and saying you've got to pass through this gate. He speaks here, of course, figuratively. So what does enter the narrow gate mean? Is this a call to enter the gate of heaven, for instance? The context helps us to determine this is not what Jesus means. And I think probably at verse 24, we find in the context a place that casts particular clarity on what he does mean. In verse 24, he will go on to say, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now the figure here clearly has changed, but I think that's the idea. Hearing his words and doing them. Verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. This seems to be what Jesus means by entering the gate. It is responding to Jesus Messiah and it is doing what he teaches. It is putting your life under the instructions of Christ. So enter the narrow gate is commit to Christ and commit to his teaching, to his words for your life as Lord. Jesus now clarifies that this commitment is entirely decisive. There's no middle ground. He contrasts two polarizing responses to his lordship and to his message. We find the first coming here in verse 13. Those who reject Jesus and his teachings are described, first of all, enter the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. We see three observations here about this response of rejection of Christ and His teaching. The first, it is easy. It's easy to make. That is the point of the gate is wide. A gate that is wide and roomy is easy to pass through. You can carry all your baggage with you. You can travel along with other people through this gate. It's, it's, it, you don't have to think about it. It's wide, it's easy, you pass through. And what is true of the gate is true then, of course, of the path to which the gate leads. The way is easy. The Greek word translated easy is literally wide or roomy. But perhaps easy gets at the essence of the point. That it's easy to go on. It's not difficult because it is wide. So so the, the gate is wide. It leads onto a wide road, which makes travel easy. This is not difficult. We ask then this question, does the path lead to the gate or does the gate lead to the path? You may not ask that question. You may not think of it. It might seem obvious here, but there are those who take it in this other way that it is a path leading to a gate. And there's a reason for taking it that way and thinking about it that way. I don't think that is the point, that we walk a certain path in life, and when we walk that path, we come to the gate of heaven, for instance, and we gain entrance because we walk the path. How does it read most naturally to you? 
The gate is wide and the way is easy that what? It leads to destruction. The way, the road, is leading somewhere. You enter the gate to get onto the road which leads to the final destination. If you've read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, this is how he interpreted it, isn't it? This is how he took it. When you think of Pilgrim's Progress, is the gate at the end of the deal or is the gate at the beginning? You remember the wicket gate? The straight gate, the narrow gate in the Old English, the wicket gate, is at the beginning of the story. Christian walks through that gate. In fact, goodwill meets him there at the gate and pulls him through. It's kind of an interesting little line. He gives him a little yank through the gate. But once through the gate, now he's on the way and the celestial city is at the end of the book. It's in the future as he journeys on this path. So as Bunyan took it, so I think is the meaning that Christ intends here. And back to the point then, rejecting Christ's counsel is easy. It takes little thought, it requires no particular effort and no burdensome commitment. It's easy, Jesus says, but the second thing he notes about this way is that it leads to destruction. And it's right here that our world recoils in shock or bursts into mockery. They don't like the God C.S. Lewis describes in mere Christianity as the God, quote, who takes sides. They want a God who takes sides. We want a God who's a spectator on the sides, watching what we decide to do, commending what we think, whatever it is, as long as you're good boys and girls. That's the God we like. That's not Jesus. He says, this path, not submitting to my lordship and not submitting to my teaching, is a path that ends in destruction. Jesus, on this point, is rigorously consistent with the Old Testament Scriptures. And the apostles who follow Christ are rigorously consistent with Jesus. We find Jesus teaching later in the book of Matthew, saying this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, He is the Son of Man. When I come in My glory and all the angels with Me, then He, the Son of Man, will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The gate that does not lead to me leads to this, to destruction. This is its outcome. This is the destiny. He will say to those on the left, Destruction. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He's consistent with his own teaching. He repeats this theme even in this book. Second Thessalonians 1, the Apostle Paul writes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Consistent with the Apostle John who reports that death and Hades then were thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So the road is broad and it is accommodating, but it is, as John Stott writes, suicide road. Left to ourselves, we follow the path of life that makes sense to us, that is easiest for us. But that road soon becomes a slide that shoots its occupants directly into hell. 
we must conclude in light of this severe warning that the greatest tragedy that we must escape in this life is not failure in the eyes of people, but rather succeeding in a life that counts for nothing and ends in judgment. That's what we must avoid. Walking through the building as I do from time to time, I found in one of our Sunday school classrooms a picture of a massive crowd of people falling off into the pit of hell and others taking a narrow path on a cross across the chasm to heaven on the other side. What do you think of that picture? A lot of people go, that's wrong. You don't do that with children. That's a, that, that shouldn't be on that wall. I think it's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Exactly. shouldn't be on that wall. And we shouldn't scare children with it if it's a lie. If it's the truth, then it's love. And in love, this is what Christ says to us. You must understand that going away from me is a slot. It's a slide into hell. Our missionary to Spain, Seth Grotsky, recently wrote this. We are surrounded by people who are running as fast as they can in order to forget that they have no place to go. It's a great line, isn't it? Running as fast as they can to forget that they have no place to go. It's well said, but put another way, it's also true then that people are going somewhere whether they know it or not. Lots of them. That's point number three, says Jesus. This easy, wide road leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Those who enter through this gate are many. Rejecting the person and counsel of Jesus will always be a popular choice. Always. On this broad road... Right, Stott, there is plenty of room on it for diversity of opinion and laxity of morals. It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. Broad destruction, many find it. And I know I've said it many times, but let's hear it again. Let's remind ourselves again. You cannot be popular twice. You can't be popular in this life and in heaven. You've got to make a choice where you're going to be with the majority. It won't be both places. And if you have some sense that I can somehow cheat the system and I can be popular here and I can join the redeemed in heaven, you're delusional. Jesus says many, the many, find this road. We can't be popular twice. Making the commitment to follow Jesus as Lord means you will walk through that gate and live your life traveling a different path than the vast majority of people in this world. Jesus is counseling us to understand this, teaching us we need to get this. There's no virtue, Christian, in being weird. That's not what we're promoting. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's just work to be weird. But it does indicate to us that if I find myself in agreement with the majority, I need to really watch out. I need to analyze and wonder what's going on. Why am I with the crowd on this? And this is real stuff. It's real stuff for self-proclaimed Christians. A local newspaper just within recent weeks, One self-proclaimed Christian rebuked us as Christians for constantly being on the wrong side of history, particularly with respect to matters of sexuality. I think what she means is the church has been wrong not to commend same-sex unions, ordain homosexuals as church leaders, and the like. I say that because that's consistent with what she's written many other times. But this chiding of the church for not being on the right side of history. Being on the wrong side of history is a way of saying not walking in lockstep with the world's latest view of justice. 
But we read Jesus' words here, and in light of these words, I expect to be on the wrong side of history. History that is interpreted by those who reject the teachings of Jesus and His apostles. When they're the ones defining what history is, expect to be on the wrong side. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Many find this road. I'm not worried about being on the wrong side of history as interpreted by this world. I'm worried about ending up on the wrong side of the judgment seat of Christ. That's my concern. And that concern is not going to be shared by most people. They're just not going to get that. While our world mocks the antiquated and irrelevant counsel of Christ, while it would chide us for hanging a picture such as I've described, or resisting the teachings of our world, while it mocks, while it prides itself in tolerance of sin and new definitions of justice, and while liberal Christians scurry to keep up, our culture continues to suffer spiritual decay. It's being destroyed. Rick Phillips writes, The irony is rich. In towering hubris, post-Christian America imagines itself to be blazing a new trail of tolerance and humanity when it is in fact succumbing to the ancient paganism in which so many people languished in abject misery until the light of Christ and God's Word shined upon it. And running out in front of much of this movement are self-proclaimed Christians. Seeking to keep up, to be on the right side of history. What side of the judgment seat of Christ do you want to be on? Being on the right side means you're going to walk with the minority. Know this. Get this, says Jesus. Understand this. It's the easy way, but it leads to destruction. It's the popular way. There's a second response we find in verse 14. That's one gate leading to one road, leading to one destiny. Now the second is submission to Jesus and His teachings. Not rejection of it, but submission to it. Three observations again. It's hard to make this decision, Jesus says. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. Lloyd-Jones pictured the narrow gate as a turnstile. One of those posts with the rotating arms that do the clicking and only let one person in at a time. You're going into a game or a concert or uh, something along those lines, a play, something like that. You maybe walk through one of those turnstiles. He pictures it that way. I think it's a good picture. It's narrow. The road of life to which this gate leads also then is narrow. Not widely accommodating and comfortable. But let's ask the question here, what does he mean by hard? This way is hard. I think it's important that we ask that question and think about it. Jesus teaches His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Compared to light, the life of sin, the way of Jesus is much smoother. So is that what he mean? What's He saying? It's, this is hard. Sin eats people alive. Following Jesus sheds a lot of the negative results of sin. It sheds them off. Jesus, in fact, said, I have come that you might have life and have it, how? Have it abundantly. So how does that square with Him saying, I'm calling you to a hard way? What makes it hard? We could say, of course, that there are difficult commands. Love your enemy, for one. Don't look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, lest you commit adultery. Take on an attitude that is meek so that you do unto others always as you would have them do to you. And this is hard. In fact, we find that it's ultimately impossible. But don't think that's what Jesus means by hard here. Lest we come out the wrong place. On this hard and narrow way, 
As one theologian put it, we come to see in the narrowness the breadth, in the dying the living, and in Him who who seems to make living so hard the great liberator. Jesus does not mean narrow and hard that we should pity ourselves and look to Him kind of, you know, through squinty eyes, like, why do you make it this difficult? He means that it is the minority way, and that's the people on the broad path who will oppose us. The Greek word translated hard here is a cognate of the word that is often translated affliction, and usually in context of persecution. So the hardness of the way is related not to Jesus making it tough on us as such, but to the lost making it hard on us. Remember, the majority are going a different direction and they're going to make it hard on those who are going on the tough path, the narrow path. This is what Jesus said in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice in that day. Expect it. Those on the broad path will make life hard. They'll make it difficult. They will persecute. Some of you, I know, because you've told me about this, you've interviewed with a boss, a potential employer, and that person has laid out for you the job. This is what it's going to look like. Here's the pay, here's the travel, here's the hours, here's what's going to be expected of you, and you say, I'll take the job. And then you, what happens? You get into the job and you find the pay's not quite what they said, the travel's way more than they said, and the hours are a lot longer than they said, right? We've faced those kinds of things. It might be a cable company, a phone company. Don't get me going. But, you know, they, they, I mean, it's, it looks like one thing and it's another, right? We see this all the time. Jesus will never be so accused, ever. He is never going to be accused of false advertisement. The way is hard. You're going to face persecution. You're going to run into people who don't like you. You're going to be with the minority. So then I think it's important that we not try to outdo Jesus. As we speak to people who are not following Him and we invite them to come through the gate, it's not going to do to make it seem like the gate's bigger. It seems sometimes in our evangelistic approaches, it's like we paint this mural around the gate that makes it look like it's really big. We're not helping Jesus out with this. We're not going to do better than He did. Now, I realize Jesus is not articulating the gospel precisely as we can articulate it on this side of the cross. And we need to keep that in mind as we work through the Sermon on the Mount. However, the way that he called people to himself as Savior was never to explain what a wide and accommodating way it was. This is going to really help you. I've got a wonderful plan for your life. I want to make your life easy and simple. He does say that in ways, but there's a consistency in which salvation in Jesus is described in the Scriptures. What did John the Baptist say? Repent. Repent. He called his hearers to flee from the wrath to come. There's judgment coming down on your head. Repent. Jesus said what? Take up your cross and follow me. You don't take up your cross to go to a picnic. You take up your cross to go to an execution. Want to follow me? Take up your cross and follow me. Peter in Acts 2. What was the essence of the message? Repent. Verse 38. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Embrace the Savior. Catch this. That you crucified. Paul to the Gentiles, turn from your idols. Turn from your spiritual ignorance. The New Testament call to conversion is always a warm invitation. It emphasizes promise, hope, attractive prospect. It emphasizes life. 
But never is that message seen as anything other than death to self and renunciation of one's way of life. You've got to go through a different gate. And you've got to understand on some level the implications. Or you've not really seen the crucified and risen Savior and His call. There is a difference between the message of the gospel as we proclaim it and what Jesus is saying here. More on that perhaps in a bit. But there are similarities that we dare not dismiss as we proclaim the gospel. So Jesus says, I want you to look closely at both gates. Observe that they look nothing alike. One gate is wide. The other is narrow. You must make a calculated commitment to the narrow one. And as you do, and remembering what he means, as you make a life commitment to walk under my lordship in obedience to what I've taught, as you do know this secondly, that this leads to life. Verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard, but it leads to life. This is a reference to eternal life, fellowship with God, a life that begins now, according to John 17.3. It is a life that finds its consummation in the kingdom of God in the age to come, but it is a life that is enjoyed now, a relationship with God through Christ. So Jesus narrows everything. But in doing so, it's like you are a nearsighted person looking at the stars with naked eyes. You kind of see some sort of thing going on up there in the sky, but you really can't make out what it is. And he comes to you and says, I want to show you the narrow way. Here, put these on. These are called glasses. And now I want you to take this up and look through it. It's called a telescope. And you're stunned. It's a narrow way. But it leads to life. It leads to life. And thirdly, to be consistent, Jesus says, verse 14, and those who find it are few. It's not popular. Does this mean there will be only a few people in heaven? There are numerous passages of the Bible that indicate heaven will teem with masses of people. In this book, Matthew 8, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Speaking here of Gentiles and their response. Revelation 7, John writes, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude that no one can number. The number then of those who are saved will be high, but the percentage of people who will follow Christ and be numbered among His people will be low. The percentage is low. The number is high. Again, Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan, in the very first paragraph of the book, we've got Pilgrim facing away from his home. Again, just a simple line. But he's standing there facing away from his home. Away from his village. Away from the destruction of that is to come there. And this is our life as a pilgrim. To be facing away from this world. We're pilgrims here. It's not our home. We're passing through. But what discouragement could we possibly entertain when we know that this gate leading to this road ends in life? And Christians, think about the company on this narrow road with the few people. We are not many, we're not mighty, and we are not fully mature in Christ by any means. But what a company. What a band of brothers and sisters we enjoy on this path. Would you rather walk with the crowd and find your fellowship among bragging, 
backstabbing, scheming, self-promoting, self-dependent, sensual children doing only for themselves what they want and leading to destruction? Is that the company you want? It's the world to which we minister. It's a world with whom we rub shoulders and seek to proclaim the gospel, but that's not our company. Would we not rather want to walk this life of those who love Jesus, who strive to bring their life under the dictates of His teaching and who do unto others as they want them to do to them? Treating one another as we want to be treated. How I thank God to be able to travel life's journey with my brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters in Christ. What a privilege this is. It is to me one of life's great joys. Is it not yours? Is it not yours to know the people of God? If you say not so much, there's only one answer and that's sin. Or I suppose it could be ultimate sin that you don't know the Lord. But where He saves us, where He gives us new life, we have this great privilege to walk among the company of the redeemed. There aren't many of us on this road, but what a company. What a joy to walk with God's people. How I thank God to be able to travel this journey with you. Adopted as Christ's children, rooting out sin, being filled with the fruit of God's Holy Spirit, loving Jesus, submitting to His authority, and even if a few of us prove to be enemies. Living with people who are called by Christ to love their enemies. That's where I want to walk. I thank God for this camp, for this troop. We've got to come away from this sermon knowing it's a narrow road, but it leads to life. There aren't many who find it, but they're the redeemed. And we come out of this sermon with something of what we might call a remnant theology. That is, these verses are far from an isolated passage of the Bible. They ooze with biblical consistency and with biblical authority. God chooses Noah. And he destroys the rest of humanity due to their sin in the early chapters of Genesis. In those early chapters, God chooses Abram. He chooses Israel, a small and weak nation, ultimately a nation of slaves. And among Israel, only a remnant of them is saved. As the early church forms, saved by the redemption won by Christ on the cross and in His resurrection power, what do we see in their history? Acts is filled with persecution. With those who lash out against God's people. They're a minority. They're reminded of this. They don't control the power. And they get hit. The majority of Jews rejected the faith. The Gentiles persecuted the church aggressively. We think of Hebrews chapter 11, those that were flogged and beaten and cut in two and tortured, killed, of whom the world is not worthy. Down through the centuries, God's people remain a persecuted and despised minority. As Jesus prepared His followers, as He put it so clearly in chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on My account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That remnant of speakers of God's Word were persecuted. Always been a remnant. 
And it's always been then an exclusive redemption. Putting those two together, they merge together. The remnant that is saved and the exclusive means of redemption. As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. There is no name the early church preached. No name under heaven by which we must be saved. Acts 4 and verse 12. All of this so consistent with all that God has revealed. Deuteronomy 30 says, Moses preparing the Israelites to enter the promised land. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments, His statutes, His rules, then, here it is, then you shall live. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you death and life, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. That's what Jesus is saying. As he says this, though, we keep running back into this problem. We keep recognizing that what he says, we don't do. I see Jesus for who He is. I hear the teaching of His Word, but I don't do it. When we put this all together and all that He's commanded us to do in just these chapters, let alone what He says elsewhere in Scripture, we recognize how very far short we fall. And one of the great dangers then is that we get the gate on the wrong side of the road. That is that we think that the road leads to the gate rather than the gate leading to the road. You cannot take what Christ is saying here and said, I'm going to try and say, I'm going to try harder now. I'm going to try to live this life the way Jesus has laid it out in this in these chapters and in this uh, in the New Testament. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to please him. First, you won't. And second, you can't. This is not a sermon intending to call us to obedience in our own strength. It is a sermon that starts here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come to God in abject spiritual poverty. But as they do, this is the life. This is the life to which He calls us. We must come in abject spiritual poverty. We must pray, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, that God would produce this fruit in us. But we must see that God does not grade on a scale. You're either in or out. He offers no second chance opportunity or final salvation of all people. It's heaven or hell. You don't stumble into this life. You commit to it. You throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus and you commit to a life of obedience to His Word and absolute dependence upon His enabling grace. Matthew doesn't end his book at chapter 7. He goes on to explain how Jesus dies to pay the penalty of sin. How He rises in victory over death and sin and destruction. We cannot separate the whole message of this book of Matthew. He calls us then ultimately to live this way, to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, to exceed the righteousness of the religious types. But in all of it, He stalks His way to the end of Matthew 26 and 27 and 28 to say our hope is not in us, but in Christ And so the gate is Jesus. The gate is His instruction of salvation to us. To enter this gate onto this way is a call to utter commitment of our way of life to Jesus. He's not seeking general familiarity with His words or distant association with His will. He calls His people to commit their lives to this way, to submit to Him, to follow Him, to obey Him until they reach the kingdom of God. Have you passed through this gate? 
Do you know that you have? Do you have the confidence? I know I'm on this road. I know I've passed through the gate of Christ and His teaching. Are you on the narrow road that leads to life? If not, please know this church is praying for you. Even if we don't know you by name, we're praying for you. We're asking that God would open your eyes to see your salvation in Christ crucified and risen and to give yourself away to this life. It involves submission to Jesus and His words, but ultimately it is, at the end of the day, a submission to Him in His greatness and His goodness. Let's bow for prayer. We are eternally thankful, Father, for your sending Jesus as our Messiah and teacher. We are eternally thankful for those whom you have pulled through the gate. Those that you have brought to understand Jesus, ultimately crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. We're thankful that we're his people. It doesn't bother us that we're the minority. It doesn't bother us that people ridicule and make fun of us in local contexts and even personal conversations. We rejoice in this. Our hearts are heavy for those who face such more difficult persecution because they're not in a land of freedom of speech and religion. We pray for those brothers and sisters who suffer physically. Lord, we identify with them. And if we went to that prison in China... We went to that place of incarceration in Cambodia, in Indonesia, in Iraq. We'd go to the jail. Those are our people. We pray for them. We pray for this people here as we are so enamored by the bright lights of this world and its attractions and allures. God, I pray that there would be a deep and persevering commitment to walk the life of Christ as His followers, as those who have been saved by His death and His resurrection. May we live out this gospel truth in our lives every day. And again, for those who know not Christ as Savior, we pray that You'd open their eyes and give them life in Jesus even today. For today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to commit to walk through the gate of Christ and His Word. I pray that you draw them there, even in these moments of prayer and silence together. Through Christ we pray. Amen.